I'm Mike. I'm Austin. We are the Test Drivers. And we put tech through its paces. And oh boy, is there so much. There's just so much. Austin, it is definitely Techtober. Oh yeah. So you now have... uh, in your long line of Xbox Series <laughs> X consoles, you now have an actual real working one. You had a video yes. go up. Um, I would say for the video was very entertaining, but like I don't really think that there was too much um, new information in it. I think the thing that I liked to see from the video was how the quick resume and the load times were working because when you did that stuff before in a video, you were doing it under very, very specific Microsoft test conditions, right? Um, And this time it was nice to see both the quick resume and the load times working, albeit for not Series X games. You don't have any of those. Exactly. So basically when we went out to the Microsoft HQ in, I believe it was like late February for the first video, you're right. They were right there. They had the entire demo set up. I could go through it. I could play the games, but it was very much kind of like, here, show these things that we have working at the moment. Now, fast forward six, seven months later, I have a Series X console. It is still a prototype, so it's not 100% final hardware, and it's certainly not final software. So I've actually been getting weekly updates with more game compatibility uh, ever since I've gotten the console. But uh, yeah, they have sort of like a, a little bit of a spread out embargo. So the first thing I could talk about was the backwards compatibility as well as the quick resume. And it works really well. Um, I think it's impressive to see just how much power that you're able to unlock out of these old games. I think actually Digital Foundry did an excellent video talking about some of the titles that have seen these huge improvements. And, you know, if they were running at 4K, but like some wobbly, like 30 to 40 FPS sort of frame rate, boom, you're suddenly immediately locked at 60 in a lot of cases. And same thing with the quicker zoom, right? The quicker zoom really does work really well. I don't know exactly, like, I need to spend more time, specifically when I get Series X games, of how many games you can keep in that sort of, like, little buffer. But essentially what you're doing is you're hibernating games, right? So it saves that sort of memory to the SSD. There's a partition or there's a little segment of your drive, which is always taken up by the quick resume. And essentially you can just sort of cycle through games. And I know they've designed it to hopefully hold handful four five six games uh when the series x comes out but as of right now you can load a fair few xbox one games and especially a lot of like older 360 and xbox titles like it'll kind of just constantly cycle them through i don't think we know this but do you reckon that it'll be a different capability in the s like it might hold less in memory i don't believe that that's going to be a huge issue um, okay. So, I mean, yeah, the, the Series S has less memory across the board, right? But it's also running Xbox One games, not Xbox One X titles. So from what I have gathered, it may be slightly less, but it doesn't seem like it's going to be anything significant. I think the, right. the amount of memory it takes up less is going to be roughly equivalent to just the smaller sizes of the games. You'll probably still keep roughly that same level of like, you know, three to six games that are going to be constantly in that buffer. I have a question for you. So I watched this video. Okay. It was really good. I was immediately struck by something. I checked it and <laughs> I was correct. Why was this video in 60 frames per second? This is, so like for context, there's a bunch of context to this. Like one, I know that you're you're a big 30 frames per second boy. Uh, 24. 24. 24 even. Sorry. My apologies. One of the reasons <laughs> I noticed is because when we spent time together earlier this year, I think it was like a lot of conversation about some footage that you needed being shot in the wrong uh, frame rate yes. and you were very upset or the wrong FPS and you were very upset so why was this one I guess let's we'll yeah. get it on the record why 24 for you 
Um, okay, so basically 24 is the standard for movies. It's the standard for like high-end TV production. It's that quote-unquote filmic look. I did not like 24 for a long time. But over time, I had my arm twisted by the guys in the office, the, the film school kids, to say, hey, 24 is the way we should be doing it. And I will definitely say that 24 does lend a certain sort of feel to the video. It sort of does give it a little bit of separation from something which is, you know, 30 or specifically 60, which gives that very sort of real motion feel. Like, personally, I like the look of 24. But when it comes to this video, I, when we did our initial Series X hands-on, that was a 24 FPS video like all of our others. But where 24 FPS does not hold up well is in any kind of gameplay, right? I mean, if I was showing Gears running at 60 FPS, but I have a 24P video, you're looking at Gears at 24 FPS, which is a suboptimal experience to be sure. So for this video, and for only this video, although I guess we'll see what happens with future stuff on the Xbox and PS5 front, I wanted to give people the full experience of... Yeah, the smoothness of what these games look like. And as part of that, or at we least shot the closer, right? Because I mean this is this is the, the there's gonna be issues with this crop of game consoles, which is the exact same issue of trying to demo a bunch of phones these days, is you're trying to show people 120 frames per second at 30 or 60 frames per second, right? Like exactly it, it just can't translate and it it just that you just have to take people saying, Oh, it's so smooth, but like you don't you actually can't really get your your head around that. Yes. I will say, though, the way we did it was terrible. So okay. <laughs> as, as you have probably seen at the studio, we have uh, a lot of really nice camera gear, right? We do, yeah. But not a lot of our camera gear is really optimized for 60p because it's something we don't do very often. So what we did for this video was we shot it on our RED. And to get the correct frame rate and resolution and everything, we had to shoot it at 7K in RAW at 60 FPS. And because this video was a fairly last-minute thing, I had to take it home and edit the entire video on my MacBook over the weekend. This is everything about this is terrible. (laughs) So it's a 16-inch MacBook. It is a very, very powerful laptop. But when you're throwing 7K 60 FPS raw footage at it, it took a while. I'll just say that. It was not the smoothest edit I've ever had in my life. But it was finished. I got it exported. It got uploaded. It works. But uh, 60 FPS, not fun. 60 FPS in raw at like 30 megapixels per frame, even worse. Yeah, it might be worth now like doing something you hadn't done before, which is working out like what is the plan for 60 frames per second content? Because clearly what you did was not the move to do. Uh, (laughs) 7K (laughs) seems slightly overkill. Um, but yeah, all right. Well, at least I know now. I was a little confused. I was like, my my first thought was, was this a mistake? <laughs> and then my second thought was, did Microsoft ask you to do that? That was my other. No, thought. no, no. I, everyone here, we had a chat at first. I was like, oh, let's just do twenty four like usual. And I think it was like Ken or it was like West or someone was like, oh yeah, we should be doing sixty because we're showing gameplay at sixty. Um, I will say though, we actually did have some major issues going into that video. Um, we tried to just. Uh, like basically add all of our color and transcode it all into ProRes, which would be much simpler. But we accidentally took that 60p and brought it down to 30 and then back up to 60, which meant that the motion was all kinds of jacked up. And I didn't realize it until I was already home. So that was part of the reason why I was like, oh, great. Now I have to go and deal with this, you know, 600 gigabytes of raw footage to be completely edited on the MacBook. So 
uh, yeah, improvements. They can definitely be made. It's like, I don't like people in 60 frames per second, but mm. I do like seeing the gameplay in 60 frames per second. Um, yeah. And I also like watching um, Jerry Rig Everything, the teardowns in 60 frames per second. It's it's human movement that f- that freaks me out when I see that. <laughs> but there are like there's detail that you can get from it, and like and and mm-hmm. with gaming content, I actually can see a real. That actually really makes a lot of sense. I think uh, to show yeah, games yeah. in sixty frames. I think that makes sense. Absolutely. So we're we're gonna have to uh, sort out a better system for future console stuff because I agree. I. I'm not a huge fan of the 60p look, but for some of these videos that we're working on, there's no choice. We we need to have 60p as a much more viable option than the last minute sort of setup that we did today. Or not today, last week. When are we recording this, Mike? I'm lost in the time loop. Uh, we, so I've had an idea, right, for a while that I wanted to do on an episode of the show, probably maybe later this year or early next year. Um, which is to do like a showdown of all of the game streaming services, right? And Ooh. my thinking was to leave it a little bit because we've still got some to come, right? Like, we, you know, like Xbox is still rolling out. I'm, I, you know, there's still some stuff up in the air. What I wasn't expecting was another entrant, which is Amazon in this mm. arena. When When I initially heard about amazon luna which is amazon's game streaming service my initial thought was oh really like come on amazon but then i had to put some thought into it and remember that amazon owns twitch so like Mm -hmm. their gaming credentials are pretty serious these days i mean not in the sense of being able to um do something say like Microsoft's doing. But honestly, from my perspective, they have more of a right to be in this arena than Google does with Stadia, right? Like sure. if you think about like where is your, you know, as a company, the DNA, how much of the company's DNA is actually in gaming. And whilst of course Google have the Play Store, it's a short it's a shot front, right? Where right. Twitch is gaming culture. So and I would say uh, honestly, I think Amazon's stewardship of Twitch has actually gone pretty well. I don't have any major complaints about the, the platform and anything that they've done to it. And I actually think a lot of the stuff that they've implemented, I mean, it's not perfect, but a lot of the stuff that they've implemented has helped creators like the Twitch Prime subscriptions and stuff, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. All of that stuff's really good. So Amazon Luna is a... Uh, game streaming service with a it's got a twist to it so it's six dollars a month for a luna plus subscription which gets you access to a selection of games that amazon will be offering and from what i can understand is that there's like a there's like a decent uh launch lineup and similar to stadia games will come and go so that's that, right? And on the on the fa- and of Amazon have created their own controller, of course, right? Like it's very Stadia esque, but with yes. a I think better uh, proposition, business proposition than Stadia to start with, because you don't have to buy the games, which is that's the thing that really bugs me about Stadia is you pay monthly and you have to buy the games. Where Amazon yes. Luna. They are giving you a selection of games. Now, we'll get into the complicated part in a second, but just that part, like that part of the proposition, I think makes a lot of sense. 
Absolutely. So a lot of the core ideas and specs are very similar. So right now it's going to be running at 1080p 60. 4K is coming soon. It's all run on the AWS sort of. They have, I believe it's like a high-end like RTX card or something. Like you get high-end specs for sure to be able to run these games. Now, to actually play them, there's not a huge selection of different clients. So it works on Fire TV. I believe they're going to have a Mac and a PC client. And interestingly, they actually have it set up on iOS and iPadOS through a web app. So, of course, there's been all of the drama around sort of like xCloud and various streaming services having problems getting on and staying on iOS. But if you can just go to the site and assuming that you have no real latency, it's all running in full screen, that could be an interesting way around things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I... Um... I think the jury's still out on this, to be honest, as to what is actually going to happen here. Um, I know Apple have made their statements, but I I don't think that this is far from done as a thing. But if Amazon have found a way to make that work in the web browser, then like, perfect, right? Like, great, go for it. And so yeah. the, the the games that have been kind of like spotted in some of their materials, assuming that these are part of the Lunar subscription, include um, there's an Assassin's Creed game, Resident Evil 7, Sonic Mania, Watch Dogs is in there, Grid is in there, Metro Exodus, a bunch of other games. So like really like, okay. looking at what's available, again, reminiscent of Stadia, but I think at $6 a month, is a much, much better proposition than Stadia is. Now, of course, they're going to have really good Twitch integration as well, right? Like, that's naturally going to be a thing that is a part of this. And it seems like it's US only at launch. Yeah. The thing is, the Twitch integration is interesting, but the YouTube integration of Stadia was incredibly exciting. And I still, to this day, don't think that is materialized in any real meaningful way compared to what they had sort of teased so i'll yeah. definitely believe the twitch integration when i see it but i mean it seems like a no-brainer right you're watching your yep. favorite twitch streamer or you're watching a gameplay video on youtube you click a button and 10 seconds later you're playing that game but the other thing which is a little bit unusual about luna is that it's actually not quite as straightforward on the pricing front so six dollars will get you that luna plus subscription right But there's also a Ubisoft game channel, which is, quote, coming soon. So I'm actually going to just read a a line from the site describing this. And let's just see if this kind of clears it up. Okay. The Ubisoft game channel will include new and favorite titles from Ubisoft, including Ultimate Edition versions for select titles. The Ubisoft channel will provide you access to play on one device up to 4K resolution for select titles. What it does not say is how much this will be or... Anything else besides there's some separate thing, which makes me wonder, what is the Luna Plus thing then, right? If you don't get Ubisoft games in that, are you going to sign up for Luna and then just like your streaming services of a giant pile of them on your Apple TV or whatever, are you going to have to have multiple game channels based on which developers actually jump on? Yes. It seems confusing. This is the Amazon Prime Video model. So mm-hmm. Prime Video has a selection of content, right? Some that Amazon have made, some that Amazon have licensed. Um, I wonder if Amazon will try and fund game development. Who knows? They have all the money. Maybe they'll try it. And they play with it, yeah. You can, in Amazon Prime Video, sign up for what they call Amazon Prime Channels. Mm-hmm. where So you can sign up for HBO, Showtime, and they will show up in your Amazon Prime Video 
listings and you just build through Amazon. This is this is basically Amazon is creating a white label system for any game publisher to create their own streaming service. So th- they're starting with Ubisoft, but they will want anyone that they can get to be like, look, yes, you might be doing streaming services here or there. You might be giving some games to Microsoft. You might be doing this, you might be doing that. But what if you give us your game content you can set the pricing and we will offer that to our subscribers so the idea being that basically people will uh sign up a la carte for the publishers that they want to have the content from it is not necessarily a clean model right like Mm -hmm. to follow as a consumer but yep. it could open up some things that otherwise wouldn't exist because like every developer is going to want to start going this route, right? It is clearly a version of the future, whether it works or not is yet to be seen. But what you've got is basically the ability to get, which clearly Microsoft are, are pushing to so hard of monthly recurring revenue. Yes. As a business, monthly recurring revenue is in some ways nicer than selling a bunch of copies of a game. Because monthly recurring revenue, you can make a lot of decisions on your business based on knowing how much money you're going to have every month. Because even when people subscribe and unsubscribe, if you do it for a long enough time, you can still map that out, right? And and you Mm -hmm. can plan for that. So everyone's going to want to get into this. But not everybody's going to have the technology or want to develop the technology to do it. This is way harder than streaming video, right? Like way harder. And, you know, really a lot of these game developers or publishers, I should say, would end up needing to go to an Amazon or a Google or a Microsoft for the technology to make this work, right? You're going to even need Google Cloud, AWS or Azure to make this work. So now all of these companies, they've just created their own game streaming services because they know this. So instead of providing these companies with the infrastructure to do it themselves, they're just going to be like, no, don't worry about it. We got you. And Amazon, I think, have potentially created the foundation for what I would expect for a lot of companies would be the most um, appealing because Every company thinks that their brand is important, whether it is or isn't to the consumer. Like, I don't really think that people care about Ubisoft game. Like, as a company, they care about the games that Ubisoft has. Like, you're not like, I'm an mm-hmm. Ubisoft fan. But, like, I don't <laughs> think that happens. But they right. want people to feel that way. Um, so the idea of having an Ubisoft channel rather than just Ubisoft offering all their games through Luna Plus, I think is interesting. I don't know if it's going to work. It's probably going to be too expensive Yeah. when you start adding it all up. But to be honest, it's still cheaper than Stadia. Yeah, I do think it's a better business model at the moment than Stadia is. I do have reservations for how big Luna can get on its own, though. Yeah. If you have a bunch of developers, if that really is the plan, I mean, I think that's a clear way forward for like the Luna Plus is almost like sort of the Trojan horse. But that's like, oh, you know, this is how we're going to get the EA channel or the Activision channel or the Blizzard channel or whatever the case is. That all sounds cool, but... I'm going to hold a huge grain of salt on this one until I actually see it not only up and running, but probably more importantly than that, to see if anyone cares. Because I do think there's a level of fatigue with streaming services right now. 
And when you look at something like Game Pass, which I feel like I beat this drum every episode, but Game Pass is a very compelling value proposition with xCloud and all the other things that you get. But that being said, there's no specific like xCloud sort of level of that streaming service, right? Mm-hmm. You're paying $15 a month for a lot of other stuff that you may or may not need based on what kind of gamer you are. So I'm, I'm to be completely honest with you, I'm surprised at how quickly the streaming wars have really kicked off just because it doesn't seem like anyone has been massively successful yet. It almost kind of reminds me a little bit about early VR and that there was this sort of gold rush to try to grab as much sort of market space as you could. And then people realized, oh, wait, this market is a lot smaller than we anticipated. There are a lot more early issues. So to me, I'm very curious to see over the next couple of years, out of all these streaming services that we're seeing, which ones are going to grow and thrive, which ones are going to completely disappear, and which ones are going to kind of bump along and just sort of barely stay alive. It's, it's very, very interesting to me. This episode of The Test Drivers is brought to you by Hover, one of our longest-running sponsors here at Relay FM. When you have a big idea, when you have a project, when you have something that you want to show to the world, where do you go? Your business starts with a great domain name. For many entrepreneurs, Hover is that first big leap. Hover has over 300 domain name extensions that you can choose from. No matter what you want to build, there's a domain name waiting for it, and they have excellent technical support to answer any questions you may have. And they're dedicated to getting you online, not upselling you. And when I say that, one of my favorite things about Hover is something that I hadn't experienced of any domain registrar before I found out about Hover, is they give you free who is privacy. Now, who is privacy basically means that people can't get your personal information from your domain registration. This is something that some companies make you charge, like make you pay extra for, but Hover include it for free of any domain that supports it. And I love that about Hover. I also love that they have a great, clean and simple to use uh, like system. The user experience is really good. The user interface is really nice. It's super simple to register a domain and get what you'd want done super quickly. They have monthly sales on popular top-level domains as well. It's super easy to see why Hover is so many people's first choice. Maybe you've wanted to try out live streaming. Why not grab a .live domain and have it redirect to your streaming platform of choice, which Hover can also handle. I saw this in our ad copy. I was like, oh, that's a good idea. So I registered Mike.live. And so I now have that. Oh, very smart. Which I thought was a pretty good domain, right? And it just goes to my Twitch page. But that that dot .live, like a lot of the dot .something, like the TODs, like some of them are really good. Some of the ones that have been added recently, like I don't really know if I could ever use them. But dot .live, I think that's one that could really catch on. So you should go and grab one of those at Hover. I'm also talking to you, Austin. You should go do it too. Go get Austin.live. Oh, I'm going to. I'm going to have to do it now because I just said it in the episode. (laughs) We know that you love intuitive user experiences and things that work straight out of the box. So you're going to love Hover. Go and buy your domain and start using it today. Go to hover.com slash test drivers and you'll get a 10% discount on all new purchases. That URL one more time is hover.com slash test drivers. I hope that you use that URL, Austin, and you'll get that 10% discount. Uh, when you register Austin.live, make a name for yourself with Hover. Uh, thanks to Hover for their support of this show and Relay FM. It's phone time again. I feel like it's been phone time on and off for like the last two months, but there's like a bunch of new phones. Um, the first one is a weird one that I wanted to touch on today, which is the S20 Fan Edition. And you'd kept mentioning this to me as like, oh, this is something coming, this is something coming. And I saw uh, Marquez did a video on it. 
kind of give some background to this device, it's, this just seems so strange to me because I just, how many phones does Samsung need to sell like at the same time? It's so many. Every price bracket, every price bracket, Samsung has to have something at. So there's some interesting stuff about the S20 fan edition. So if you recall back when the Note 20 vanilla, I guess we'll call it, like the standard 999 version with the plastic back, when that came out, it was a very tough sell, right? Mm $1,000 for what was very much a sub-flagship phone. But it seems like... Uh, yeah, and not a 120 hertz display. It's the 60 hertz. Like, there were a lot of problems with that base Note 20. But when you look at something like the S20 Fan Edition, it has, our, our, I would almost say, fewer compromises, and it's $300 less. So they actually said something along the lines uh, that this is actually one of the first phones that they've developed post-pandemic. So this was something that they had sort of not initially planned on developing, but they sort of fast-tracked it to get it out before the end of the year. What it huh. basically is is a very slightly cut down S20 for $300 less. I mean, yeah, you got a plastic back, but there actually aren't that many huge cuts in really anywhere. I mean, still got an A65. I guess it has slightly worse cameras and actually a slightly different, I think it's actually a higher megapixel front-facing camera. But the level of trade-offs that you make with something like the S20 Fan Edition really, I think, are very, very palatable, except that... If you look at the standard S20, which is still MSRP of a thousand, you can actually get it for pretty close to that $700 price point, which is. Um, well, I thought this. Yeah. I was looking around and I couldn't find anything particular, but I thought if you couldn't get it now, it would be soon. And like, so this is part of my problem of like, I understand the potential benefit of having something available at every price point, but I don't know myself if this is actually a, a, a big benefit to Samsung. Like it feels like too much, like just too much. Like because the more phones that they're doing, and see, I know that Samsung have historically always had a large selection of phones, but it feels like this year they have gone extra heavy on the top <laughs> end, the stuff that they make videos out of, right? Like in keynotes and presentations, like the A series phones have existed forever, right? Like. They have that market covered, but they don't make a big song and dance about those. But now you have all of these. I've been seeing ads for some of their cheaper phones as well, right? But now when you throw in like the S20 Fan Edition, it makes the Note 20 look even worse. Yeah, yeah. It's not even a contest, right? That phone was not great to begin with. And now you get a phone which is $300 cheaper, has many of those same sort of design features, except it has the much better display. I mean, it's not really a, a contest. It's, so the thing is, I think we all have a little bit of a warped perspective on things. Because if you look at like the list of the top-selling phones just sort of across the industry, the iPhone 11 and the 10R before it, by far the most popular single smartphone around, right? Incredibly, incredibly popular. But if you look through that like top 10 list, you're going to see some of those like Samsung A-series devices on there. Like it's not necessarily always the flagships. No, so, so I have no problem with the, I, like I'm not criticizing that particularly. Mm-hmm. My criticism now is that I think they have too many models on the flagship mm-hmm. end. There's too many phones now. And... They're not doing a very good job, I think, of differentiating them now. Mm-hmm. Like when they mm-hmm. had, what was that one, the something E? Oh, the S10E. See, that made sense to me, right? 
Yeah, because just like it looked different, uh, it had a different name that kind of denoted that it was same but less. It worked, but now you're bringing like the you've got the S twenty, the S twenty plus, the S twenty ultra, the Note twenty, the Note twenty ultra, and the S twenty fan edition, which doesn't even make sense as a name, right? Like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense as a name. Isn't the last fan edition, wasn't that the Note 7? <laughs> yeah, it was the only one. It was the one that, like, that was the phone that exploded. So they were like, for people that really love this phone, we've we've fixed them all now. And here you go. Here's the, f- you are clearly a fan of this phone. Here's that fan edition. That made sense. But definitely had nothing to do with the giant pile of inventory that they had sitting in a warehouse that they wanted to get rid of. Definitely not that. It was but for like, the fans. I have no problem with them doing that, right? I think that was fine. But like, who, like, what, am I the fan of an S20 so much that? I but I don't own one or it it's weird like this whole thing is yeah. like weird Samsung to me and then there are these yep. old, like peculiarities to it where starts at 699 but if you get the 5G version which is 7.9 everyone in the world gets the Snapdragon chip rather than some markets getting the Exynos chip which is one of the weirder things that I think Samsung does anyway is that they have these two different chips but it's even more like it gets more curious now that they have a phone and I guess it's because of the 5G. Well, but they've got other phones with 5G Exynos chips. See, what this whole thing is yeah. super weird. I have a theory okay. that there are departments inside of Samsung that ma- manage the different phones, and they're all going wild and fighting with each other <laughs> and throwing out new devices all over the place. This is a great phone, right? Like, this phone yes. has a plastic back, but I think at 699 in the current, like, landscape of things is fine considering everything yeah. else you get. I had a problem with the 999 plastic back Note 20 because I mm-hmm. think that that is a ripoff, right? Like, to, to do that. Um, to skimp on anything, a phone that costs $1,000, I think is is a joke, honestly. Like, yes, it's $1,000. Everything should be top-notch, right? Yep. Um, but this this as a device, like I think it is very compelling. It is the same starting price as the Pixel Five, which we're going to talk about a little bit later on in the show. <laughs> and I'm these two, I think, have a lot of similarities to them, and it is in this quote unquote new sector of the market, which is actually the old sector. And there are four iPhones coming, and I bet you. Oh the yeah, iPhone 12 Mini, which is what it's apparently going to be called, starts at 699. Oh, it's definitely going to be in this range for yep. sure. It's we've seen such a weird thing in the smartphone industry over the last year, year and a half or so. It used to be pretty clear, right? There were flagships. There were like the OnePluses of the world, which were budget flagships, and there were budget phones, right? It was fairly straightforward. But now. It makes sense to have phones at every price bracket that you can. But I think as a consumer, it is a little confusing. I mean, even as like a tech enthusiast, it's kind of hard to even put these into categories, right? I mean, what's a $500 phone? I mean, that's mid-range. You know, you look at like OnePlus Nords and then you even go down to something like a, a Pixel 4a. But then as you start kind of creeping your way up, you get to a point where the line between a OnePlus 8 or a, an upcoming OnePlus 8T and then you get to an iPhone. Like, it's just, it's so confusing on like what each of these categories are. And it seems like there's not really clear competition because some phones, like for example, the OnePlus line, they do an excellent job of really over-promising and over-delivering across the board at mm-hmm. that price point. Mm-hmm. Whereas you look at Samsung's, I mean, I think the S20 Fan Edition seems to be very reasonably priced, solid phone, not a lot of complaints about it. 
But then you look at something like the Note 20, which is completely ludicrous and easily two to $300 more expensive than it should be. So it's, it's a weird, weird zone we live in, especially when you look at, again, at that Pixel 5, which I hate to keep teasing, but that, that takes a very different level of trade-offs at that price point. It is just, it's all over the place right now. Yeah, it really feels like these companies are starting to move around that, like, you know, like the, the good, better, best. And, mm-hmm. But the problem is that better starts at $1,000 and is what we used to consider <laughs> was the really good one. You know, because mm. now it seems to be we're getting like the really expensive ones. You know, you've got the Notes, the Ultras, uh, you, probably the the Pro phone, like the Pro Max iPhone. And then you have like the Nord, maybe the Nord actually is out of that bracket, it's even cheaper, but like the typical OnePlus, the Google Pixel, uh, the S20 Fan Edition and the iPhone 12 Mini or whatever, they are now kind of like actually much better at the lower end than they have been in the past. But the thing is that that lower end is actually weirdly more expensive than the high-end phones used to be. Phone pricing has gone bananas these last couple yes. of years because the high yes. end has gotten so high because of like folding phones and stuff. Everything's knocked out of whack. I know we keep talking about it, but companies keep doing weird things. Speaking of <laughs> companies with with doing strange things with pricing, there is another OnePlus on the way. There's actually been quite yeah. a few details about this phone uh, released already. It's going to be the OnePlus 8T. Um, OnePlus have confirmed there will not be a pro version of this phone. Like they're not going to mm-hmm. do the 8T Pro, it's just the 8T. Um, and it seems like the things that they're focusing on right now are the display. They've confirmed it will have a 6.5-inch uh, 120 hertz display. So that's one of the big things. Yeah, and that makes sense because, I mean, you look at the OnePlus 8 and the 8 Pro this year. The 8 Pro was and still is, I think, an incredibly compelling device, right? There's not really mm-hmm. anything that that 8 Pro is lacking right now, even with the wide variety of different phones that have kind of tried to creep up into the price point. But you look at the 8T, there are some clear places for improvement, right? So I'm curious to see what they do with the design. I'm really curious to see what that 120 hertz display looks like. It seems like it's going to be mostly at parity with what you get on the Pro, maybe not with the curved edges. They don't typically do that. But this seems like a bit of a no-brainer, right? And I'm actually really happy that OnePlus were in traditional fashion, to be fair. But they were very upfront about this, right? Like, hey, look, there's no Pro coming. We're just doing the 8T. But on top of all these other things, it seems like there may be one, if not multiple, Nord devices under that brand that also may be coming in the next couple of months as well. I know there are a lot of rumors about maybe a potentially cheaper budget option that goes even below the standard Nord. And also something in the U.S. We still do not have the actual Nord here. And, oh, man. It's it's just there's so many phones, Mike. There's so many phones. How do we how do we even like we could do an hour episode every week just talking about all the phones that are coming out at this point? Like it's it's if we can't keep up with it, can anyone? No. <laughs> no. Oh, okay, cool. Okay, easy. <laughs> it's really difficult right now to keep up with it all, but I guess there is definitely fun in that as well. Yes. So speaking of fun, I have a little secret from you, my friend, that I've been keeping for a little while. I'm not secretly using a Windows Razor device or something like that. I'm not pulling a mic on you. But um, I don't know. Does this this sound familiar to you? Does that sound like anything that you've ever heard before? I mean, it sounds like a Z Flip. 
hmm, what if I told you that I am currently the somewhat proud owner of a Z Fold 2? Oh. <laughs> now, the first thing that had to happen is, not kidding, my brain had to scan to try and work out what product that was. <laughs> right? Because I was like, hang on, I already know he has a Z Flip. You've been, how long have you been using it? Okay, so I actually didn't purchase this device. This was our good buddy Ken's fault for an upcoming episode of Mystery Tech, where he's oh like, oh, God. here you go. Yep. yep. That's an expensive so Mystery Tech. <laughs> oh, you have no idea, my friend. But on the flip side of that, I have now been, for, it's only been a few days now, so I haven't spent a ton of time with it, but I've been using the Fold. Now, I know we've talked a lot about it, and I will just say my initial impressions. I still prefer Z Flip, right? Like yeah, that I knew is you still would. definitely the device. Yeah, like I like the size of it. Like the Fold has been really useful. Like in fact, when uh when the Google Pixel event was on, I watched it on the Fold. It was really nice. I had the it in sort of like the mm. we call it like the tent mode or whatever, like the the half rotated view, like similar to what you get on the Z Flip. It's a nice device, and I will say that the 120 hertz display, that huge internal display, is so nice, man. It is like. It's really noticeable because I've never used a device like this that has essentially the inner screen, so that large, you know, folding display, that's 120 hertz, but the outer display is 60. And nothing will get you to realize the difference in fluidity between actively moving between 60 and 120 that quickly, right? Like, it's something that's like that outer screen, even though it is so much larger and so much more useful and a million times better than what you get on the Z Flip, it feels really slow compared to that inner 120 hertz display. I uh, I can't imagine anything pulling you away long term from the Z Flip for quite a while because yeah. it's the size. Mm-hmm. I will say, look, the hardware is nice on this, but as someone who has been primarily using Z Flip for almost the entire year now, this hardware is huge. It is heavy, heavy. Like, I can't believe it. This feels like two and a half, three Z Flips in weight. And also mm. some of the stuff that I kind of have gotten used to on Z Flip actually kind of bothers me on the fold. Okay. So like the fact that the fold doesn't fold flat, right? Like after right. using the Surface Go, or not Surface Go, the Surface, Surface Duo, Duo. Oh my God. Mike, this is the episode that we just sound like old men who can't keep product who names can straight. Keep up with all these names, he <laughs> says. Like seriously. Oh my God. So the fact that it doesn't fold flat means that it's also a little bit sort of thicker. The I just, I'm not a huge fan of the actual aspect ratio of it when you're using it closed. It's just a little bit too heavy and bulky for me. I know that sounds like I'm complaining a lot about a $2,000 Flippy Boy phone, but it's a real stark contrast from the Z Flip. It really is. It is such a different device. It is nice. The 120 hertz is nice. And honestly, having that huge inner display is convenient and it's nice to see, but also just like with the Surface, I don't get a lot of use out of it because I'm not really multitasking all that often. And I would say 80% of the apps that I use on a regular basis don't take amazing advantage of a larger display. It's really like, you know, Twitter is just scaled up. I almost see less information because it's so wide as opposed to tall. It's interesting. I might do some follow-up at some point. There's certainly advantages to this phone. But um, yeah, Z Flip gang, my friend, it's not going anywhere. I couldn't have a secret flippy boy phone without telling you. I mean, that I seems appreciate like that. Be. And I'm also <laughs> he- happy to hear that you're not letting go of your beloved. 
No way, man. No way. Do you want to tell me about this new Surface laptop? Yes. Okay. So there are actually a couple of Surface-related announcements. So the Surface Pro X is getting a new processor option, which is very expensive. Uh, I'm kind of interested in it. And there's also some announcements about Windows on ARM is going to be supporting uh, full 64-bit apps soon through emulation. But there's some upgrades on that front. But I think the more interesting thing for most people is the Surface Laptop Go. So this is a essentially a lower-end Surface Laptop. So it is similar to the Go in that it is smaller. There's a 12.4-inch display. It actually does have better specs, except when it doesn't. Okay, so here's the deal, right? The laptop itself, the hardware is great in traditional Surface fashion. It has a sort of nice keyboard. You have a fingerprint sensor built in on the upgraded models. Uh, it doesn't sadly have the Windows Hello facial recognition, but I mean, this thing starts at $550, which I think is a very reasonable trade-off. But just like the Surface Go, which has a $399 price point, if you want to get the base model, the base model of the Surface Laptop Go, I 100%, without any hesitation, cannot recommend. Okay, so on the good side of things, you get a 10th gen Core i5 standard, right? So every Surface Laptop Go has the same Core i5. It's Ice Lake, you're going to get the solid graphics. Obviously, it's not the most powerful of the Intel chips in the world, especially considering that 11th gen is right around the corner. But still, completely no problem on the performance front much better than even the upgraded version of the Surface Go. But Mike, it starts out with 4 gigs of RAM and 64 gigs of slow EMMC flash at that base $550 price, which is the exact same as the Surface Go, right? The Surface Go starts with a, it has a a much, much worse processor, but it has only 4 gigs of RAM and only 64 gigs of slow slow storage. Like, that's just not okay. That is not okay. I mean... $550 $550 is a good price, though. It is. But the thing is, just like with the other surfaces, it's a really sort of misleading mm. price because, like, you don't want to buy that. You don't want to buy the base model. And the same thing... A little bit more RAM, and this thing would be, like, just a fine, like, web browser, Chromebook-type device. Yes. Right? But it need, I think it still needs a little bit more RAM to make that... A, a, a pretty good experience for kind of modern day web browsing. Yes. And the thing is, you can do that, but then the problem is it gets much more expensive, right? So you basically yeah. have to jump up from 550 to $700 to get 8 gigs of RAM and a 128 gig SSD, which is fine. That's a little bit more reasonable, but I think it's a little bit of a trend with surfaces, right? Because, you know, you look at the Surface Go, $400 sounds great, except you need the keyboard and you need to upgrade it, right? Like there, there's always more stuff to do. So it's like you look at these base prices and you go, oh, that looks pretty solid, except that literally no one should buy that spec, right? I think if you get that mid-spec Surface Go, it's better. But then at $700, you're getting that nicer hardware, which is certainly mm. appreciated. But it's a little bit harder to sort of wrap your head around exactly what that full experience is going to be like. Because it also has, it has the three by two aspect ratio, but it's actually a fairly low resolution. It's even lower than the Surface Go. I believe it's something like uh, 1500 by 1000 resolution or something. It's a very strange resolution. It's interesting. And it's touchscreen. It's it's nice hardware, I have no doubt. And I will hopefully by the next time we uh, we record, I'll have actually one in the office and I'll be able to play with it. But again, I don't think the Surface team are doing themselves favors by shipping such low-end specs and their base models. Because if you pick up a Surface device 
just like any Apple device or any other sort of high-end sort of device of any kind, you want to make sure that you're giving people a solid impression of the performance and you want to make sure its longevity is there. Like You want to just ship something which is a good, usable product. And in 2020, at the end of 2020, shipping a brand new anything that's running Windows with four gigs of RAM is crazy town. I mean, not even at $400 with the service go, I don't recommend that. But at $550 for those same compromises, sure, you have a little bit more processing power. But that's just, uh, I don't know, man. I don't know. I mean, hopefully that they will do for this one like they did do with the Surface Go where it did get appreciably better from version 1 to 2. Yeah, and it doesn't totally, like, my problem with it isn't really the fact, like, I mean, as soon as you go up to that $700 model, I think that is 100% reasonable. Obviously, you're paying a premium for the design, but that's fine, right? Like, I don't have a problem with that. I just think it is a bad user experience to sell base models which are significantly less than what they should be in my opinion right i just that to me it doesn't feel great i just feel like if they were able to push a little bit farther like sure they got the 550 dollars price tag that's great that's a great headline on the verge but when someone actually goes out and buys the 550 option they're just going to be disappointed right like the, the performance the longevity is just not going to be there it depends what business you're in, right? Like if you then want them to buy the Surface Laptop Go 2, then you need mm-hmm. to make sure that the Surface Laptop goes like th- that, you know, they've got the, a good experience from that. But maybe yeah. they're just thinking like, this is a one and done for people that don't care or people that don't notice. Sure. There are a ton of schools, I'm sure, yep. that will buy these things up like crazy. And like, if we put that base model aside, this thing looks really nice. I love that kind of form factor. The smaller yeah. 12-inch display with a really tall aspect ratio is great. Yeah. It's going to have the same great trackpad, the same great keyboard. You've got USB-C, Surface. I also think that it's a smart move, even though it's making the names even more confusing because now we have the Surface Laptop and the Surface and the Surface Go, and now we have the Surface Laptop Go. Yeah, but it's not a Surface yeah. Go; it's a laptop. You know, like so it gets confusing, right? Like, right. The, the Microsoft's naming is also getting very convoluted because they they are interchanging product names in the Surface line very freely. Yeah, but I do think that it makes sense for them. Microsoft are going to succeed in the Windows hardware business. Only if they can provide what they, their OEM partners provide, mm-hmm. which is choice across the line. Yes. And I feel like this is an interesting product in a lot of senses because even at you know, $700 or $800 or whatever you want to actually spec it out to, there aren't a lot of premium small laptops out there anymore, right? I mean, there used to be the 12-inch MacBook. But besides that, I mean, you're looking at 13 bordering on 14-inch laptops for a lot of those sort of small portable devices, and oftentimes they're far more expensive, right? So the idea of having something which is small, very portable, and also not $1,000 plus, that's a real win, right? I love that. And I mean, that's part of the reason why I have used the Surface Go, uh, and specifically the Go 2, a fair bit, right? That's a solid device, and even when you spec it all the way out, you just simply can't get another Windows device that will fill the niche that that Surface Go will sort of fill. And I would say it's the same thing in the laptop space. There just simply aren't a lot of very small portable laptops out there. And the ones that you can find, they're just simply not in the same kind of price category. So a lot of the the trade-offs of, I mean, even though it maxes out at like 256 gigs of SSD and spec, 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 blah, 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 like mm-hmm. whatever. Like as soon as you upgrade a little bit, it'll be totally fine. So I'm I'm happy that they're doing this. I just don't, 
necessarily agree with sort of selling base models that aren't going to give you that full experience that you might expect with the Surface brand. The last thing I want to say on this is if I had this money, I would go Chromebook over this because... Oh, interesting. Well, purely because the experience of using the device, I think a Chromebook would be better because I bet Windows does not run very well on those specs where Chrome OS is basically built to run on anything. True, true. Well, I mean, it depends on how you use it, right? I mean, if you really are using it inside the web browser all day, you could probably get away with that base model. Yeah, but but for me personally, it's like, you know, and and I think for for a lot of people, but not every user, um, I think that you wouldn't really get much use out of this past that because those specs, right, that doesn't lend itself to video editing. For, for example, <laughs> right? Like you're no. going to be doing typical work or typical school stuff, which mm-hmm. by and large is in the browser these days anyway For in a lot of instances. I think that even schools, especially schools, would be better placed going Chromebook over something like this. Sure. But on the flip side, if you do want a premium small Windows laptop that is not going to break the bank, I think you upgrade this thing just a little bit and it becomes a very, very compelling value proposition. And I'm really excited to get my hands on one. What I want to know is if you can open it up. Oh. Put your own RAM inside. Oh, that's a good question. I don't think so. I Most bet. of the IceLake systems are LPDDR4X, which is almost universally... Actually, I think you have to solder that. You can get DDR4 for it. Mm. I'd be very surprised if you can upgrade this yourself. Maybe the SSD? Maybe. Some services allow you to do that. But I bet that RAM is going to be soldered all the way down. This episode of The Test Drivers is brought to you by the IntraZone from Microsoft SharePoint. I love finding new podcasts. I know that you do too. If you're looking for something new, why not try out The IntraZone? It's a bi-weekly podcast of conversations and interviews on how Microsoft SharePoint, OneDrive, and related technology can work for you. It is a great time to be reevaluating your work, your systems. Maybe you're working from home. Maybe your team has become more distributed. These are the types of conversations that can help you understand new ways to adapt. You're going to hear from guest experts behind the scenes and out in the field so you can see how SharePoint could fit into your work life to easily share and manage content, knowledge, and applications. Every episode covers a bunch of segments like their news and announcements. They focus on a topic of the week. They have guests for fresh perspectives and they have an FAQ as well. So they can go through some stuff that they're hearing from customers and from listeners. And they'll also detail upcoming events. And this is actually something on a recent episode that I checked out of the IntraZone. They were giving the lowdown on all of the news from Microsoft Ignite. And I really appreciate getting to hear more information about the announcements directly from the people involved in making them. So I, I think you'll check it out. They're discussing working from home as well. I mentioned that it's like super relevant, uh, figuring out intelligent intranet and how that could work in your organization and even talking about APIs and stuff like that for their teamwork and how that can work out great for you, which I think you want to give it a try, give it a listen. Go right now. Search for The IntraZone wherever you get your podcasts. That's I-N-T-R-A-Z-O-N-E, or you can click the link in the show notes. Go check it out right now. Thanks to The IntraZone from Microsoft SharePoint for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Google time, baby. So did you actually, I'm really curious before we even get into it, did you watch the event? Yes and no. So uh, the, <laughs> okay. I was uh, I was recording a show when the event was going on, 
okay. and was going to catch it up later on. Uh, and then I saw people kind of reacting negatively to the event online. So I watched a, a video that The Verge put together, which I really like these videos in these instances where they chop up the announcement video into like six minutes or something to show you the, mm. the key stuff. But I did get from it the feel of the event and I'm actually really pleased I didn't watch it because of that. <laughs> okay, you know what? I'm going to be the contrarian here. I actually didn't think it was that bad. Like, look, Everyone this year is taking a very new approach to events. Mm-hmm. To me, it feels very clear that they had hired like some TV people to put this on. It very much sort of felt like it was shot and edited like a little bit of like a reality show or like it felt like like a Netflix show, right? In a lot of ways, right? It had that feel. It was weird, man. It was weird. Like everyone was talking off camera and there was a lot of like handheld shaky camera. Like <laughs> I don't understand why you would present a presentation in that way because, yeah. like, who are the people talking to? Like, they're talking to <laughs> the someone. Producer. Yeah, but, like, who <laughs> is that person in the mind of the producer of the, the show, right? Like, they're, yeah. sh- they're supposed to be talking to me, the consumer. It's mm-hmm. not like, haha, we made this product, which it kind of felt like. And also, even just in the clips that I saw, it kind of had a feeling that people were a little bit unprepared or like talking off the cuff, which also felt really weird as a, as a way to... <sighs> Look, I will not fault them for trying something different because mm-hmm. it's easier to say no one can compete with Apple at the moment, right? Like, right. I would say that when it came to like on-stage keynote type stuff... Microsoft, Samsung, they were doing as good a job in their own way, right? Like Samsung went big and like uh, big and loud and like incredibly beautiful presentations. Microsoft had a great sense of like intimate presentation, which also played really well. But now everyone's got to try and do them all over video and Apple is just destroying it. And so now everyone's trying to do their own thing. Google went with this vibe. This vibe did not work for me. Fair enough. I think with some tweaks, this format wouldn't be terrible. But then again, I am very much sort of influenced by that cable reality TV style for honestly for a lot of our videos. So I I feel like I recognize that and I didn't hate it. But regardless, they had some good parts of that presentation. My favorite part was when Rick comes out at the beginning and says, hey, here are the products. Here's like my, you know, two line, like little sales pitch for each. So there's no stressing. It was a short presentation. It was, it was like barely 30 minutes. So I like that of like, don't bury the lead. Here you go. Product A, product B, product C. Here you go. Boom, boom, boom. They also had some YouTubers in there. Like when Dashi was in there, that was cool. Mm-hmm. The Mark Ronson thing actually I thought was kind of interesting but the products were of course in typical google fashion incredibly thoroughly well leaked so there's that new chromecast which is actually i believe uh last week was on sale people were buying them at home depot before it was announced so you just go buy them at home depot which is (laughs) as one of the weirdest (laughs) google leaks that has ever occurred like product that nobody knows is coming uh it's available to buy a week before they (laughs) announce it (laughs) Oh, Google. I, I, look, man, I know it's hard to keep stuff under wraps, but like, is it that hard to keep people from selling your product before you've even announced it? That seems like not the hardest ask in the world. Yeah, that, that one, that, this is, that is a particularly peculiar one, right? The Chromecast looks cool though. So it now is. The remote looks nice. 
Yeah, which is a huge win, right? I mean, so they're still, to be fair, they're still selling the original Chromecast. So that will still be available if you want it. But basically, the new Chromecast for $50 will give you the remote and an actual interface. So you can still cast stuff just like you could before. But it is, I would say, a very Apple TV-inspired interface, right? So it will gather up recommendations. Yeah, they're going for it again, right? Like ninth ninth time the charm with Google and television, but they're trying it again. They've even used Google TV branding yep. like a while back, and then they switched to Android TV, and now they're back to calling it Google TV. Nothing wrong with that, man. I mean, I will say I thought the Chromecast was great in 2013, it feels like that time is very much past. The vast majority of TVs have some kind of casting sort of situation built in. And outside of that, not super useful. So look, I'm totally happy to see the new Chromecast. I think it makes a lot of sense. Plug it in just like before. Yeah. But while you can still cast, it's nice to actually have an interface and recommendations and to be able to use a remote. There's also the new Nest Audio. I will say it looks just like a Google Home Max that has been hit with the shrink ray. But mm-hmm. at 100 bucks, it does seem like a pretty reasonable replacement for the Google Home. But I think the definitely the thing we have to talk about are the two new Pixel devices, which of course are not even really new. They announced them a while back when the Pixel 4a, that yeah. they were coming. But we have the Pixel 5 and the Pixel 4a 5G, which is a hard name to say, although it kind of has a little bit of a rhyme to it, the 4a 5G. Let's yeah, start with a 4A maybe. 5G, actually. Okay, so at $500, this is v- sort of actually a really pretty much just a square in the middle device between the 4A and the Pixel 5, right? So it has the same processor, it has the same 5G capability and the exact same cameras as the Pixel 5, which we can get into in a second. But it loses a few things from that phone, and it's $200 cheaper, right? So it doesn't have water resistance, doesn't have wireless charging, it has a plastic build instead of aluminum, just like the Pixel 4a, a little less RAM, and it has a 60 hertz display instead of a 90 hertz display. But at $500, you are getting a lot, right? So it's actually the biggest of the Pixels. So it actually has a bigger screen than the Pixel 5 and the 4a, which I find interesting. That is so weird. That's so weird. (laughs) There's a scenario in which Google were like, here, I know, we'll call it the Pixel 4a XL 5G. And thankfully, someone vetoed that. But I'm sure that was in there somewhere. Oh, definitely. <laughs> uh, it is powered by the Snapdragon 765G. So that is the same processor that you would get inside the Nord uh, or something like the mm. LG Velvet or the LG Wing. It is, I will say from personal experience, a perfectly competent chip. It will handle those higher frame rates like it does in the Pixel 5. It is not a high-end flagship chip, though, which is because it's shared with the Pixel 5, a little bit more of a questionable decision there. But you most importantly have full 5G support built in. Yeah, that chip in this phone, that's no question, I think. It's like it's fine. Like That's what this chip is for. It's meant for the $500 smartphone with 5G support. Yep. Like that, exactly. You know, as you say, like it's in the Nord, right? Like this mm-hmm. is what it's supposed to be. Absolutely. And I don't have a problem with the plastic build, right? I mean, I feel like the Pixel 4a, I no. mean, sure, it was uh, 350 bucks. So there are definitely some major uh, price differences between the two. But I mean, I like that plastic feel. It is definitely sort of a little bit of a unique Google thing at this point. And it is certainly not a deal breaker when you look at other companies who are starting to come back to the plastic backs like Samsung or, mm-hmm, of mm-hmm, course, mm-hmm. companies who are going for the um, slightly questionable glass slash not real glass backs when this is just pure soft touch matte all the way around. But then there's the Pixel 5. Okay. 
This is, this is, okay, we were talking earlier about how hard it is to have a good sense for where, like, the flagship versus mid-range line is. The Pixel 5, I would say, slams right in the middle of that whole mess because it's a $700 phone. Here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing, Austin. Google are out of the flagship game. They're done. They don't make a flagship anymore. Because they can't. Yeah. They can't. The 4 was such a flop. <sighs> Right, like mm-hmm. from I, I don't think it sold well, but I think especially like critically, they were still trying to be in the like look at us, we're at the top tier, and it was missing so many like table stakes features. Yes, they're not in this game anymore. But this is a better place for Google to be, mm-hmm. right? And it is a flagship in many senses outside of the raw. Snapdragon A65 specs, right? So it's $700. You get a similar design, so it definitely looks like a Pixel. But there are some upgrades. So you have water resistance, which mm-hmm. is nice. You have finally wireless charging and reverse wireless charging. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, it's in an aluminum build as opposed to plastic, which I don't know. I could be wrong. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen no, that before. I don't before. think anyone's done that before because that's one of the reasons why phones went all glass. Not the only, but one of them, right? I know that it is possible to pass wireless charging through aluminum, but I believe that that causes all kinds of issues as far as like with the touch response and with like, I believe heating may be an issue. I, I don't know because it's <laughs> never really been done before that much. That would be such, it'd be such a Google thing if like it sucks, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, we added it, but we've made everything worse because we added it. Uh, I mean... Look, I'm sure they figured it out. Maybe there's just like a little like plastic cutout in the middle that's like been finished over that that's where you wireless charge. So, I mean, it is certainly possible. And mm-hmm. I, I will say I'm excited to feel what this is because you're right. It's been a long time since we've had a full aluminum phone. And obviously having a unibody sort of design is nice. You don't have to have that extra plastic or the, the plastic. God, I've, I, the, the S20 fan edition has gotten to be. You don't have to have the glass mm-hmm. in the back, mm-hmm. and so it should be a little bit more durable. And plus, it's just a nice sort of feel to have that aluminum all the way around. But the rest of the specs are, I would say, fine at 700 bucks. So, 6-inch, full HD display, up to 90 hertz. That's something that if you recall back with the Pixel 4, it would run at 90 FPS, but it was not consistently there you couldn't lock it there and sometimes it would be a little overly aggressive it sort of bring you below mm-hmm. that frame rate so i just thought it was uh, interesting that they definitely clarified that it was up to and not just 90 hertz uh but of course snapdragon 765g it does have a little bit more ram so it's eight versus six gigs of the pixel 4a and a slightly larger battery but the main benefit of pixels of course are the cameras and thankfully both the 4a 5g and the pixel 5 have seen somewhat of an improvement so gone is the very questionable telephoto camera which Mm -hmm. nothing against the telephoto but the problem one of the many problems with the pixel 4 last year it didn't have an ultra wide right like that was a major major flaw i think if anything that the the main problems it had one camera right like you know because i think it it could be did it have two the pixel 4 had a main camera and a telephoto but no ultra wide this year they've Flip that. So it still has the main camera, but instead of the telephoto, they have an ultra wide, which I personally prefer because you can always zoom in and the digital zoom that specifically Google does is pretty good, but you cannot replicate an ultra wide field of view. I don't know why they can only have two. Yeah. And on top of that, I am not going to sit here, especially because I don't have the phone yet, and try to tell anyone 
that the Pixel 5 is not going to have an excellent camera. No doubt it will. But from everything I'm hearing, this is the same sensor from the Pixel 4a, which is the same sensor from the Pixel 4, which is the same from the 3a, which is the same from the 3, which I believe is very similar to the Pixel 2. Now, we have absolutely hit a point in which it is no longer about the sensors and the megapixels. And while, sure, there are 108 megapixel sensors out there and much larger format sensors on a wide variety of phones, but it's pretty clear that that alone is not really where it's at, right? It is all in the computational photography that Google really has sort of led the way on ever since that original Pixel came out. That being said, it feels a little bit strange to me that the camera hardware has not improved at all. Now, they added some more software features, right? So Night Sight now works with portrait mode, so you can take portrait photos in the dark, which is great if you can get someone to sit still for long enough for that. There's portrait light, which is really cool. It's like sort of this virtual light that you can move around the scene. And apparently that's actually going to be a feature almost sort of being ported to Google Photos as well. So you may actually be able to like import your old photos through Google Photos and then add the portrait light. Cool stuff. And one of the things is actually speaking about the event, they, at least some portion of it, they weren't actually super clear, but at least some portion of the event was shot on Pixel 5, which might explain some of the like shaky cam stuff that you were seeing. I don't, I don't you totally imagine? know. It's like, oh, all the stuff you didn't like was because they shot it on their camera. <laughs> I, look, there was like one, as far as I saw, they may have talked about it more, but as far as I saw, there was like one little bit of text that popped up saying, a shot on Pixel 5, like yeah. as they were talking and yeah. it matched. So like, I don't know if that whole event was. I thought if they did shoot on the Pixel 5, it looked totally fine. But you can't really judge that kind no. of stuff because obviously they have, I'm sure, some huge rig strapped to the front of it with some giant lens and perfect lighting, blah, blah, blah. But they have some improvements. But the thing is, are they doing enough to keep up? Like, they can continue to add features and sort of tweak the processing and tweak the processing. But you look at other companies who are going for just much larger sensors Companies are going for higher megapixel accounts. So people are pushing the envelope in a lot of ways. And I get it that they don't want to go necessarily get in the arms race. Like, I totally understand that. But just using the same sensor year after year after year after year just seems strange. They are in the arms race, though. And they, 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 I mean, they put themselves in the arms race because they do have the, the – clearly, I think at this point, they have the best processing because Google yeah. are able to turn out com, like competitive images with a very old sensor – at this point so like mm-hmm. but it is peculiar like what is stopping you from changing the sensor so the reasoning that i was informed of was that they've spent so much time trying to get everything out of this sensor that they're very well optimized for it and to be fair some features are actually being sort of backported through the older pixels so there's some stuff which is interesting and they want to try to keep that sort of google camera app Tip-top, tons of features, tons of performance, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I, I, I don't get it. I don't know if it's because they're trying to save money. I don't know if it's because it really is just that they've hyper-optimized for the single Sony IMX sensor and that's just what they know and love and that they can get the most out of. But as we sort of get better and better, I mean, you also have to consider that sensors have a part to play in the actual amount of images that can come off, how quickly they respond, mm-hmm. how what kind of video they can support. Like, there's other stuff that's not just pure processing, although a lot of it really is on that processing side. So, yeah, I have this thought of, well, of like, I wonder if in the future we'll regret not having the data in the images, you know, that come from having a, a better mm. sensor. 
and that mm-hmm. all of this stuff that's just being processed by computers is it going to end up looking bad? You know what I mean? I mean, having a good sensor and lens in any camera is a key point, right? I mean, yeah. you can process all you want. You can use all the AI neural engines. But, like, at the end of the day, it is always nice to have a good base image to start from. And there's certainly nothing wrong with the Pixel, right? I mean, it has taken excellent photos for years. I guess my main thing is while it's improved, the improvements from that Pixel 2 to the 3 to the 4 and now the 5 were noticeable but not massive right i mean like you see like little tweaks here and there and it sort of gets better and better but i don't know if they're really doing necessarily enough to keep up with what is going to be i'm sure an excellent iphone samsung has really been on top of their game specifically the last year and a half two years or so with their devices so the pixel 5 is a weird one for me especially considering that it is 700 dollars, the same price as that s20 fan edition and it's a little bit of a I mean, sure, the design in a very weird turn of events is more premium because you've got metal instead of plastic. So good job, Google. But the specs aren't there. And uh, the screen, while it's 90 hertz, is not quite as smooth. And who knows how stable that 90 hertz is. It's it's a tough one because like, I don't think it's wildly off. Did they torpedo themselves with the 4A 5G here? Oh, okay, so here... What do you think? I'm actually, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. I'm like stacking these up, right? Looking at our notes. It's like what? Water resistance and wireless mm-hmm. charging? Mm-hmm. The build and the uh, 60 hertz versus 90 hertz display. Those are the main differences. The cameras on the Pixel 4a 5G are identical front and back. The design is very similar, obviously just yep. being plastic. And I guess it has a little bit less RAM, but it is a very similar phone. It's sort of really the screen and that hard, those little bit of hardware features that mm. are the real difference. Mm. Google have a weird lineup now. And it's like, I still feel like, given what we've seen of the three, the 4A, the vanilla 4A, is still the easiest recommendation. What is that, 399? How, how much no, is it? No, it's 349. 349. 349. Yeah. So, like, that's a real clear value proposition that is an excellent phone with again the same cameras right so you have to keep in mind it doesn't have the ultra wide but it still has that same main camera takes excellent excellent images that seems like a real win the rest of the pixel line is i think better than last year no doubt i think that the pixel 5 looks like a more competitive phone than the pixel 4 the 4a 5g is is interesting but i don't think there's a slam dunk between the 4a 5g and and the pixel 5 they both seem like they're slightly compromised and the performance, specs, and price. like None of them really feel that they hit the sweet spot that the standard Pixel 4a hits. Yeah, I think for me it's all going to come down to the cameras. Yes. I, I'm excited to try some of the new improvements. I'm just not entirely convinced that it is going to be any real different compared to every other Pixel phone that we've used over the last few years. Nothing wrong with that. Instagram will still be excellent. We'll still be taking lots of excellent Instagrams and tons of great mm-hmm. selfies and all that kind of stuff. But if you keep making the same thing and you incrementally improve it year over year, you're kind of asking for everyone else to catch up and leapfrog you. 